are we? We're saying Christ is risen. We serve a risen Savior. So what a great joy that is to come and to celebrate that this morning. Even though I wasn't sure uh, at the beginning of the week whether uh, I would actually be here uh, or not because I was to have uh, surgery on my nose on uh, on Monday and I, I kind of underestimated uh, how long it would take to recover because the, the specialist said well you don't but you don't even have to go to a hospital you can just go to a clinic and have the procedure done so I kind of figured that I just kind of show up on Monday it was kind of like a drive-through and and you just I just kind of go through and get the procedure done and then I'd, I'd be good to go but I, I arrived at the clinic on Monday morning and I, and I said well of course this is just minor surgery right and and then they looked at the side of size of my nose and, and they laughed at me so and they said well I'm sorry but you know you have to go under and they're going to take a hammer and a chisel and they're going to work on your nose a little bit so uh, I wasn't exactly sure I was going to be here but uh, if I was going to be able to be here at all I was I was wanting to uh, be able to share in this occasion because this is one of the great times that we have to share as uh, followers of Jesus when we get to celebrate uh, the truth and the reality of his resurrection this morning as uh, a guide for our uh, sermon we're going to look at uh, some of Paul's words that he pens to the, to the Colossian Christians. And I would invite you to stand with me as we hear from the Lord through the pen of Paul. We're we'll looking at Colossians chapter 2, starting with verse 6 and going to verse 15. It's Colossians 2, 6 through 15. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we come to worship you this morning uh, beside ourselves with Easter joy. And even if life isn't all that we'd like it to be right now, we know that we've been given the opportunity to celebrate the greatest event in the history of the world. 
the victory over sin and death through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So secure us, we pray, in this joy, even when it doesn't make sense to anyone else. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I can honestly say I have been waiting for this particular day my entire life. The last time Easter Sunday coincided with April Fool's Day was the day I was, was a year I was born. I have waited a lifetime. So that's like, like years ago. So that's, that's a long time. This is probably, for most of you, the very first time that this has happened, where Easter Sunday has fallen on April Fool's Day. Can you imagine that? Imagine the, the, the kind of possibilities that, uh, that are there because of that very uh, coincidence of those two dates. And we have to admit, maybe some of you this morning already have pulled some April Fool's pranks in your own homes. That's, that's happened in our house already, and I didn't do it. So uh, it's kind of one of those days where you kind of horse around a little bit. And, and over the course of history, there have been some real good April Fool's pranks. Like uh, back in the 50s, there was a, a BBC documentary that showed people in Switzerland harvesting a bumper crop of spaghetti from spaghetti trees. And people believed it because it was on TV. And that was the 50s, so like it wouldn't lie, right? Or back in 1989, there was a newscast that said that the Seattle Space Needle had collapsed. And they had pictures and everything. But it was a huge hoax. Or maybe you remember 2015 where Cottonelle tweeted that they were introducing left-hand toilet paper. So these are all kind of April Fool's jokes that have uh, been through the course of time. And they're epic in, in their own right. But what I'm saying is that no matter what kind of April Fool's joke you have heard of or you have pulled yourself, they all pale in comparison to the greatest, the ultimate April Fool's prank of all time. Easter. Now I know what you're thinking, and before you check my medications, let me explain. Now, most April Fool's pranks are funny... But they're, they're not really deep. They're just kind of funny ha-ha. And they're funny ha-ha because they're fake. They're false, right? But, but Easter is the ultimate April Fool's trick, not because it's just funny, aha, funny ha-ha, but because it's funny ah Because it's true. And the reality is, the joke is not on us. The joke, this April Fool's joke, this mammoth, ultimate, cosmic April Fool's joke is on those who don't get it. What this means to me, at least, is that I think it shows that God must have a sense of humor. Now maybe that sounds a little scandalous to you, but it's true. 
And here's how we know it's true. Jesus was sent to reveal us the Father. He was sent to show us what God is like. Jesus had a sense of humor. Therefore, God has a sense of humor. It, it makes perfect sense, does it not? I, I spent years studying this. I actually wrote a doctoral thesis on the humor of Jesus. I spent three years on the quest for the hysterical Jesus. And he was right there in the Gospels all along. So indeed, it is true. Jesus is one seriously funny guy. And it's right there for all of us to see. And if you can't see it, if you've been reading through the Gospels and you can't see how God has a sense of humor, you need to come and talk to me. You need to learn how to read the Bible in a new way. You need to learn to have a new method of interpretation, what I would call a new humor nudic. And you'll be able to see it everywhere. Because apparently God does have a sense of humor. And this morning, because Easter and April Fool's Day coincide, we get to celebrate this massive, amazing, world-changing joke. Now what's important here is that the majority of those around us don't get it. Have you ever been in, in a situation where, where someone has told a joke and everyone's laughing and then there are those in the crowd that like, they just don't get it? And how embarrassing that is for them and, and for you? But the majority of, of Canadians don't get it. Now there are lots of people here this morning, but there are a lot more people who aren't here than are here. We're a minority. The majority of those people that we live with and work beside don't get it. And so this morning, we come to, to celebrate a, a joke that we get that no one else does. And they don't get this because they don't understand how God operates. They don't understand why God does what he does. They don't understand what God is doing. Because it doesn't make any sense. Because the, the message of the gospel to them is complete, sheer foolishness. From first to last, they don't get any of it. That God would become flesh and blood and dwell among us and move into the neighborhood as the God-man. They don't get it. They don't get the incarnation. Why would a self-respecting God become like one of his creatures? And why would, would he allow himself which is more, to, to submit to being crucified as a common criminal, to appear powerless and pitiful. But the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, elsewhere that, as, as Tim read earlier, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So to speak of the incarnation makes no sense. To speak of the crucifixion makes no sense. To speak of the resurrection makes no sense. First of all, people who are dead don't get up again and, and never die again. That just doesn't happen. And even if it does, how could one of these resurrections have enough power over all of the spiritual forces in all of the universe? It seems ludicrous. 
It seems stupid. It seems foolish. And that's why Easter is the ultimate April Fool's Day joke. Because most of the world doesn't get it. To them, the gospel makes no sense at all. And to them, Jesus, following Jesus, being like Jesus, will never be enough. There will always have to be something more, something higher, something deeper, something fuller than simply just following after Jesus. And this is what brings us to the context of Paul's letter to the Colossian Christians. Now the believers there were up against a group of people who were trying to tell them that Jesus wasn't enough. That it had to be supplemented with something else. They could never experience the fullness of salvation, whatever that means, by simply trusting Jesus. And so Paul is rectifying this situation as he writes to the church there. And we don't even know who this group of people was at the time. But it does look like they are a group of uh, Jewish people, maybe from a neighboring kind of rogue synagogue, who are very intense about how they practice their spirituality. And so they seem to feel that in order to experience the true fullness of salvation, you had to take all the dietary restrictions and all the special feast days and all the special rituals, including circumcision, as well as taking all the spiritual beings like angels and spiritual powers. You had to take these all very, very seriously. And you had to discipline yourself in order to be uh, able to, to reach the heights of fullness that set you apart and above all the rest of the people. And if you weren't as hardcore on these things, you were simply just a lightweight. And you would never experience this fullness or fulfillment that was so important to every one of them. So in other words, what these people were telling the Colossian Christians was that Jesus just isn't enough. Following Jesus and, and receiving Jesus is not good enough. It's not full enough. And they start looking their noses down on the basic gospel message because they didn't get it either. To them, the gospel from beginning to end was complete, utter foolishness. So, how do you help followers of Jesus who are being pressured to think that following Jesus is not enough? That God doesn't know what he's doing in offering us the gospel. Well, what you do is you let them in on the joke. And that's what Paul's doing. And that's why he begins by saying, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving so when we hear these 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 words receiving christ probably what pops into our mind is something similar to what we may have experienced ourselves at some distant past time our minds go back to a time when we realized that we were seriously messed up 
and that Jesus could take all of that away from, from us and forgive us our sins. So in, in the heat of, of that emotional moment, we receive Jesus by asking him into our heart. Now it's not that this is wrong, necessarily, but it's just not the full story about what Paul means when he talks about us receiving Christ. To receive Christ is not just to make a personal commitment to him, although it includes that. It is also a commitment to certain truths about him. So we can't receive Jesus as Lord without learning about Jesus as the Lord. So to to receive Jesus means that we commit ourselves to the truth of the gospel, that, that he lived on earth a perfect life, that he died for our sins, that he was raised on the third day, that he ascended into heaven, is interceding for us at the Father's right hand, and will soon return for us as his people. See, we can't receive Jesus unless we receive these truths about Jesus that identify him for who he is. We can't receive Jesus as Lord without realizing that he is the the ultimate authority over all things in our lives, including the powers of evil. Because if Jesus isn't Lord, then he can't deliver us from our sin as our Savior. So receiving Jesus is us coming under the conviction that Jesus is indeed who he said he was. And we make that personal commitment to him as our Lord so that he can take these powers of evil, destroy them, and deliver salvation to us. That's what it means to receive Jesus. And so Paul's saying, as you have received Jesus, so walk in him. That's what he's saying. Keep on living out what it means to have Jesus as your Lord. The one who has given you life and will continue to give you new life. And you don't have to pay attention to those people that are naysaying, those haters who are saying that Jesus is not enough. Because those are the individuals who don't get the joke. They don't understand what God is up to. Now, Paul is pretty straightforward about all this because he issues a rather stern warning in the next verse, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So Paul's coming right out and and forbidding them this kind of philosophy. Now, it's important for us to realize here that Paul, when he's talking about not being taken captive by this philosophy, the philosophy that he is targeting here is, is the false teaching of these heretics, the ones that are causing all the trouble for the Colossian church. Paul here isn't saying, you you shouldn't be reading Plato or Aristotle or any of the other philosophies. 
and any of the other philosophers over the period of time because, quite frankly, uh, these are very helpful. I, I know that, that Plato is, is very helpful, and I, and I use it all the time. So Paul's not saying you shouldn't be paying any attention to philosophy generically. He's saying don't be held captive by this particular philosophy that's saying Jesus is not enough. And so the warning goes out crystal clear. So Paul's response to this, this false teaching is, is to the point. And for the rest of the text, he shows us how we can combat those occasions when people around us say Jesus is just not enough. If you want to go higher, if you want to go deeper, if you want to go fuller, you need something on top of Jesus. How do you combat that kind of, of teaching? Well, his response is well-rounded, and as we might expect, it all surrounds the person of Jesus. Time and time again, that little phrase, in him, with him. It goes all the way through this text like, like a beautiful refrain. The response to those occasions when people who don't get the joke say that Jesus is not enough. We have to follow what Paul tells us. And so, for those who uh, wonder where true fullness comes from, in verses 9 and 10, Paul says, We have fullness in his divine life. Let's read verses 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. It is no accident here that Paul mentions the word fullness twice. Two short verses, he mentions it once as a noun and once as a verb. So he's got this false philosophy of, of these, these Colossian Jews in the crosshairs. This is who he's aiming at. And they're saying, well, you can't have fullness unless it's something added on to Jesus. Notice how Paul reiterates that true fullness is only found in him. And Paul here is talking about Jesus, the God-man, the Word made flesh, as the one who brings true fullness. And notice that little phrase there where it says, You have been filled in him. That is one loaded phrase. You have been filled in him. You. You plural. Y'all. All y'all. Not just individually, but together as the body of Christ you all, all of you, have been filled. In other words, this has already happened. This filling has already been granted to you. It happened in the past and it continues to be a reality in the present. 
This is not something we look forward to. This is something that God has already given us. You have been filled. And you'll notice, you have been filled. You haven't filled yourself. God has filled you. And you have been filled in Him. This fullness is found in, in fellowship and in partnership with Jesus. And so what he's saying that we, we have fullness. And we have the fullness in this divine life. And this Jesus who has come to be like us, so in other words, what, what Paul is using here, he's using the argument of the incarnation, God being made flesh, and showing how that leads to the fullness of life. And this Jesus who became flesh is the one who was ahead of, of all authority and all power. And he's the one who has filled you. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I mean... When, when Paul says that Jesus, the God-man, the Word made flesh, has filled you, how much fuller can you get? When you are filled to the brim... Through Jesus Christ, the very God-man, who is head of all rulers and all authorities, that's full. And it's not that we've completely arrived there already, but that gift has been given. And that's why he says, you just keep living out what you have been given. In the way that you have received Christ as Lord, continue to walk. It's already been granted. We're just to walk into that. Grow into that. Because the fullness is there already. And that has been granted to us. So, that's kind of tier one of his response. But Paul doesn't just stop there. He goes on to attack this, this false view of fullness. And he turns his attention to the whole circumcision issue. Now these false teachers there in the, in the neighborhood were saying that all believers needed to be circumcised in order to experience true fullness. If you weren't part of the covenant people of Israel, you could not really claim to have that kind of fullness. And again, Paul says no, because he goes on in the next couple of verses to say, we have fellowship in his death. Notice what he says. In him, see that again, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Now Paul's saying that we don't have to be circumcised to be a true member of God's people. We already have a special kind of circumcision. A circumcision made without human hands. We have the circumcision of Christ. 
And Paul is referring here to the death of Jesus. He's referring to the cross. He says, we belong to Jesus not because we submit to a ceremony of circumcision, but because we have shared in the very death of Jesus. We have been buried with him in baptism. In baptism, we identify with Jesus in his death. Now, Paul tells other churches the same sort of thing. He mentions to the Romans, chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So he's not telling the Colossians anything he, he hasn't told anyone else. And as we read the New Testament, we see that baptism in the New Testament is an image of the death and burial of Jesus. And so what Paul's saying here is not that baptism is the new circumcision. What he's saying is, when we have baptism, when we identify with the very death of Jesus, when we participate with Jesus in the very depths of this experience, who needs circumcision? Because we've been given a circumcision without hands, we have been given the circumcision of Christ. And baptism is this powerful picture of us going down to death along with Jesus. And again, as we look at this, this is not something that we do to ourselves. We can't make ourselves die with Jesus. This is something that is given to us. Something that God does for us. We don't baptize ourselves. We are always baptized. It's God's initiative. What God does in, in this very simple and eloquent, symbolic ceremony is what matters, not what we do. So it's not a matter of just kind of sucking it up and going all ballistic and hardcore on this stuff. It's just receiving what God desires to give to us in the depths of that experience where we follow along with Jesus into the, into the burial grave. So, when people come to, to shame us into doing something more or doing something deeper or better or higher to get close to God, Paul's just saying all we need to do on those occasions is to look back to our baptism. And we don't need anything more. Because you can't get any deeper than being in a watery grave with Jesus. See, our, our fullness comes from him. Not by anything that we've done. So, by this point, we haven't made it any further than Good Friday, quite frankly. So we can expect, as, as Paul is usually uh, the kind of person to do this, that he's got more to say, and, and he does. Because he goes on to say that we also have forgiveness in his resurrection. He takes over where he left off. In which you were, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you 
who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. You see, we also have forgiveness in his resurrection. And this is basically the second half of what he's already told the Romans. We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the ultimate crushing blow to this false philosophy. We don't access the power for true fullness by getting on the right side of power and authority or spiritual beings like angels or planets maybe or stars. In the resurrection of Christ, God has made all of these powers look stupid and powerless. Fullness is not found trying to placate all of these other kinds of forces, spiritual or otherwise, around us. True fullness, true forgiveness comes from the resurrected Christ. And God made him Lord in Christ by raising him from the dead and in doing so has made a public spectacle, has shamed those world forces and spiritual guides and angels and everything else you can throw into that bucket. Because they all pale and they all look stupid and dumb and lame compared to the power of Jesus evidenced in the resurrection. And this is what God has done through Christ in the cross. This gift, like the other two, is something that we've already been given. It is already our present possession. There is no possibility of going deeper or fuller with God outside of what God has already given to us in his incarnation, his crucifixion, and now, in particular, his resurrection. He's given it to us. And he's simply asking us to live out what we've already been given. So there is no secret to something that is fuller or deeper or higher than Jesus. This is as high and as full as it can ever get. In the end, what Paul is saying is, is simply this. In his foolishness, we receive his fullness. In the foolishness of the incarnation, in the foolishness of the crucifixion, in the foolishness of the resurrection, we receive his fullness. And all that's left to ask is this. Who's laughing now? So this morning, I think maybe we should leave the last word 
to Michael Card and his song to God's own fool. You know the best thing about a good joke? It's meant to be shared. And often in our family, at least the place in which those jokes get shared is around the table. And so this morning, on, on this Easter Sunday morning, when we celebrate the glory and the joy and the victory of the resurrection, Jesus himself, the risen Christ, invites us around his table to share in the, the ultimate joke of the universe, of, of how this lowly peasant man, 
God incognito gave his perfect life for our sinful lives and has planted us in a family that encircles the globe looking forward to the day when we will spend uninterrupted communion and life with him and with each other. That is one amazing joke. But his invitation to the table is no joke. So we're going to be concluding our service this morning by partaking in communion. So I'd ask the uh, servers to come forward and we'll spend the last few moments of our, of our time together responding to the invitation.